welcome back to what is most certainly Taylor Swift's favorite podcast, Beethoven Walks Into a Bar. We know it's her favorite because she added a line about it when she re-recorded her Red album, Taylor's version. In fact, she said recently in an interview that that was actually her main motivation for the re-recording and re-releasing of the album. It's true. I'm Stephanie Brimhall, the Director of Education and Community Engagement with the Kansas City Symphony. I'm Jason Sieber, the symphony's associate conductor. And I'm Mike Gordon, principal flute of the Kansas City Symphony. Well, today's episode of Beethoven Walks Into a Bar is all about that bass. The Kansas City Symphony boasts one of the very best bass sections of any American orchestra, and we have the honor of sitting down today with one of the members of this prestigious section, Mr. Caleb Quillen. We are going to unlock all the mysteries of the largest, the lowest, and noblest instrument of the orchestra, get into a heated debate about French bows versus German bows, and learn oh all about the bass section's knack for style <laughs> and fashion. Fashion. Indeed, Mike. And, you know, I've hung out with many members of our bass section quite frequently. They're, they're one of the most fun sections of the orchestra. And I have to tell you, they are a great group of people, a lot of fun. But I have to also say that all the stereotypes of a bass section are like dead on true with our bass section. They like to party. They like to, you know, have a lot of fun. There's a lot of beards in the bass section. Uh, Did you say beards or beers? Beards, beards, with like facial okay. hair. Like good facial hair. But there might also be a lot of beers, I think. There like. are beers and beards, actually. Mm. You're right. Uh, they're all into football, fantasy football. As a matter of fact, you know, our Kansas City Symphony Fantasy Football League is like almost just the base section. It's it's amazing. They all they all like to play. <laughs> uh, so we're so excited to sit down and talk, uh, like Mike said, with one of the six members of our base section, Caleb Quillen, today. Caleb, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. We're so glad you're here. Let's jump right in. So... Why is the bass so difficult to play really well, especially when you're talking about intonation? We always hear that the bass is so hard to play in tune, and you wouldn't know it from our bass section because our bass section plays incredibly well in tune. Um, but what is it about the bass that makes it so difficult, and why do we have the best bass section in the universe? <laughs> <laughs> in the universe. Yeah, I, I mean, I believe it. Uh, I, th I think it's also just the fact that we all get along that makes it better, yeah. too. So, yep. um, I mean, obviously, you give a lot of thought to this as a bass player. Intonation becomes your primary thought for many years. And I, th I think it's just due to the size. It's due to the size. It's due to the frequency. You know, it's, it's the fact that our strings are huge. It takes a lot of strength to actually hold down the note. And a lot of the times, I think that is the main factor is just the amount of strength it takes down to hold down the note to where it's not being interrupted by anything else. Mm. You know, and I think it's just hard to hear for a lot of people, including ourselves in the orchestra. So that can be really tough too. So you kind of have to go by sensation alone sometimes because you're not really hearing the higher frequencies of the instrument. So mm. that makes it, that makes it really tough and, and just getting around it. I mean, the fingerboard is four violin lengths. Yeah. So, uh, you know, one note is half the fingerboard of a violin <laughs> or, wow. or, you know, the, the space between in our, in our, uh, between a whole step in our first position is basically a, a violin. Yeah. I have a question. So I'm a clarinetist or was in a former life. 
when I listen to all kinds of music, but I mean, even pop music, I always pick out the not just the melody, but like in the harmonies, like my ears naturally just pick up like the higher harmonies. As a bass player, do you find that like when you listen to music, you just through your training, hearing the the bass lines or the lower lines, or do you also just like a like a regular person just follow the melody? Um, I, yeah, I think it's bass line first usually. Huh. Uh, and I, I, I think that's just habit of the way that we're listening in the orchestra too and our like the place that I've spent so much time in music you know i haven't thought about that in a long time but yeah i tend to gravitate towards the low end that's usually the first thing that i pick up on is how the bass player is like say we're listening to some taylor swift Mm -hmm. Uh and how how that bass player because usually those guys are really great studio musicians so it's really interesting to hear that how they're affecting the harmony and and uh usually yeah that's where my ears go mike would you ever say that your ears just immediately go to the bass line well, it's funny you should ask. Uh, normally, I end up sitting very close to the bases in the orchestra. Yeah. So actually, I, I have the benefit of hearing a lot of the bass line when I'm on stage. But no, when I listen to music, uh, I'm I'm kind of like you. I tend to hear, you know, in the range of of my instrument best. And it's funny, you know, I, I've had this conversation with people in regard to piccolo, which is kind of at the other extreme of of the range of instruments. And, you know, I hear those really high notes of the piccolo well, because, you know, that's what I'm used to listening to and tuning them. The bass, forget it. It, you know, it <laughs> usually all just kind of sounds like, you know, unless it's... I think we're all hearing the piccolo. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's, you, can't, you can't miss it. <laughs> that's what we're going to call this episode. It's going to be the bass, forget it. <laughs> <laughs> Many people do. <laughs> it's cool that we're talking about listening to the bass because every good orchestra's foundation is the bass section. The bass section, the tuba, the low brass, etc., cetera, uh, the bassoons, because we are supposed to build everything from the bottom up, both for intonation when we're trying to tune chords, but also when we're trying to get a really great orchestral sound. That starts with the bass instruments. Talk a little bit about that, Caleb, and and how you approach that as a bass section when you're trying to lay down this solid foundation for blend and balance and and even rhythm, because I think it'd be interesting if you talk some about how bass sections have to kind of anticipate the beat a little bit, because it does take a little bit longer for your strings to speak sometimes. I just threw a lot at you there to to unpack, but... (laughs) No, I I think the... The first thing to mention is any of the low instruments in the orchestra, you don't realize this, but they are affecting the setting so much, the mood mm-hmm. of the orchestra. You know, our, the timpani sets the setting for anything, the, the bass, the tuba. There's that feeling that you can't describe that if, if you're a, you know, a, a concert goer, that's your first concert or something, you're probably feeling it more than you're hearing it. And I think that that is where it starts. So I think th- there's a lot we can do just by setting the scene for the orchestra, setting the color. So basically what I mean by that is if we're going to play something soltasto, which means over the fingerboard, that, that can give a more glowing effect to the to the sound of the section. And I've and I think that really affects if people are listening to the bass section, that really affects how they play. It's the way that you know, I, I mean, I, I compare us to the timpani all the time uh, in that way. But the way that we affect our instruments, I really think translates to the other instruments in, in a way that they, they think speaks. And it, it, it kind of like, you know, it's a second language of like, okay, my hands are doing this. So 
hopefully if you're listening well enough that you'll do something similar. Mm. And I think that does come from the low end. Mm. I, I, I like what you said about color, especially, because that's what I kind of think of when I think of how the bass contributes to the orchestra. I mean, in addition, obviously, to the rhythm and, you know, the, the foundation of harmony. Bass, I think, of all the string instruments, for me, has the most variety of colors, mm. especially through its range, right? Like you hear a bass player play, you know, one of the Bach cello suites, and it's, you know, it's pretty high in the range of the bass. And especially as you go up, the color of the instrument just, I think it transforms in this in this really spectacular way. But um, we mentioned earlier this uh, this business about the German versus the French bows. I'm really interested to hear your thoughts about that because this is of course something that other musicians in the orchestra would be would have a familiarity with you know understanding one versus the other but not necessarily even what the uh, virtues of one or the other might be so and i think it's really fascinating it'll be interesting for our listeners so talk a bit about that so so to be politically correct we we now call it <laughs> overhand and underhand Oh. That's what oh. most. That's those are the oh. hip terms. So I'm I'm not bow woke. <laughs> <laughs> you're not you're not bow woke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just yep. I just woke you up. Great. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I mean, I call it I call it overhand and underhand now because you know it. The I think the origins of that are just from the pedagogy of of where in the region of the world the bass mm. players were. So uh, a lot of French pedagogy. Uh, just tended to be overhand and Italian pedagogy, Italian teachers tend to be overhand and there's a tradition there of playing mostly overhand. And in Germany, it's the other way around. So they play underhand. And if if you want to get into the history behind it, it's because bass is a, a derivative of gamba instruments, right? It, it evolved from the gamba, not the, the violin family. Mm. So gamba is underhand. So technically... The underhand players, the German bow players, are doing what's more historically appropriate. Mm. But does that matter to me? No, I I think it's just how you play the damn thing. So, um, <laughs> does that mean yeah, you play so overhand? I play overhand. Okay, uh, but that's just because you know that's what I was given, and I didn't think twice about it. Now you know the grass is always greener. You think about German bow. It looks. I think German bow looks so much cooler than French bow because it's it's like it can look like this claw type. Uh, especially if you watch Berlin, they're just like slapping their bases with, with the uh, German bow, and and it looks really cool. But yeah, and, and do describe for everyone just so they understand the bows are actually different for oh, for each right. of these so, techniques, right? So the yeah, the German bow is is a deeper frog, and you hold it with your thumb on top, just as if you're you you let your hand fall at your side. That's how you hold the German bow, and uh, the the frog it's in a C shape. And it's about, you know, four inches, or that's not, that, maybe that's not true, maybe three inches deep. And the camber is also a little later. So the camber is where the the bow actually bows, right? Mm. And the French bow is a, is a shorter frog, maybe about one and a half to two inches, depending on the bow. And you hold it overhand so the thumb goes inside the crook. So... It goes inside the little C shape in the bow. I wish I had. Like I was going to say maybe we could put some um, some pictures for, on our show notes so that people can see <laughs> right. these things. Yeah. Oh, we can for do that. For everyone listening, just yes. Google yeah. Google these bows. <laughs> I'll, um, I'll put some pictures in the show notes. So yeah, those are the, those are the main differences, and I think there are some subtle differences in sound. It, it's hard to say, but from my experience, I think German bow tends to be a little bit more of a direct sound. 
And I don't know if that has to do with just the natural weight into the string, the fact that your pressure comes from above the instrument, the way that German bows are made. Um, and what I mean by direct is that maybe the it gets higher frequencies more naturally. Mm. They tend to be a little heavier, and they, you, they, you know, they they also tend to be a little more articulate. I don't know at first because they're just so active because the way you're holding it makes it bounce. It's really hard to control, in my opinion. The French bow, I think, because it's overhand, it's it's a little bit more difficult to get that natural weight into the to the instrument, unless it's the E string, which is the low string, which to me is a little easier on the French bow because you don't have your elbow in the way of the instrument, so you don't have to change the positioning of the instrument to get to that low string. So on the on the E string, French bow seems a little bit natural, but the rest of it, it, it can be really hard to teach somebody, especially, how to use their natural weight into the string. And not to mention, like you, sometimes you just don't know what to do with your hand. <laughs> I mean, it's like Ricky Bobby. You don't know what to do with <laughs> with your hands. You're like, with like, oh, do I put my pinky here? Do I put my first finger here? I think violin, viola, cello have more of a tradition around that kind of thing, even though they all hold it a little bit different. But bass, you have to find your own, with French bow, you really have to find your own way of, of where you place your fingers. And in German bow, it's just much more simple. You just hold the bow maybe a German bow player would correct me if they were here, but it's, I think there's less, uh, nuance in the, in the, where you put your fingers. I mean, it's really just like it holds there. Maybe you can change where your thumb is, but it's not every single finger. Now I'm feeling like I'm going to be attacked by the German bow players of the, of well, the community. Uh, but, uh, our own yeah. section is how many people play with the overhand bow technique and how many people play underhand. So it's three and three right now. Oh, nice. Uh, yeah, before Brandon Mason had left uh, the orchestra, he we were a, uh, all the back of the section was French bow, so we called it French row. French row, because <laughs> it was Jeff and Evan in the front, and they're both German bow players. But now it's now it's half and half, cool. and uh, yeah, we've just started playing like that. So I'll see how how that really affects the sound. Yeah, that's really. It'll cool. be interesting to follow that. Definitely. So one other one other. Um, the technique that you use or one other device you have when it comes to equipment is an extension on that lowest string, the E string that you mentioned, which takes you all the way down to a possible low C, mm-hmm. which is an incredible sound. It's one of the most beautiful sounds you can produce in an orchestra. It's one of the best. Uh, and obviously the extension came about uh, in the 1800s, correct? And composers started using it then. Or what, when was the, about when did the, was the extension invented, do you know? Jason, I have no idea what year. No I idea. Mean, <laughs> but, I, I, I feel like a bad bass player, but I, I, you know, the extension that we use now is different right. than the extension that was used then. The extension back then was, I think that was developed in the uh, 1900s. 1900s. I don't know okay. if it was as far back as, as the 1800s, okay. but... Uh, I could be wrong about that. So well, that actually that actually plays into my question, though, because there are times where you, as a bass section, do decide, even though the composer didn't write a low D, they wrote the D that's our open D string. We have the ability to play a really low D, and in this moment, that might give the whole orchestra a richer sound. How do you make those decisions? Is it the principal player that makes that decision and then tells you all, "Let's play this." this these three bars an octave lower or how does that work uh it's usually i mean we usually get a sense of it or you know sometimes we're all like well we have to take it down you know Mm -hmm. like it just feels right and and the principal player picks up on that 
but usually it is decided by the principal and depending on what's happening in the cellos. So say, you know, we're playing a Beethoven symphony, the cellos have a low C and depending on what we're doing and depending on how sensitive we want to be and, uh, what else is going on in the music, we'll just decide to lower the same, same octave so that we can fill the space a little bit more. Um, but yeah, it's really a case by case basis because you don't want to bring down because a lot of the times, especially in uh, romantic and, and later music, the composers don't want you to now that they have that capability, they would have written that extension yeah. if they wanted it to be there. So they they wrote that particular note. That's how they wanted it to be in the harmony. Right. So let's not change that at all. But sometimes people take more freedoms than they maybe should in my opinion but but i still love playing low c i mean it's one of the best feelings especially in the whole sections doing it so i i want to kind of take this and then go back to to what we were talking about just a minute ago we're talking about colors and and the really incredible range of the bass and your ability to play low but one of my favorite things that happened in our mobile music box series so we did a bunch of concerts you're smiling you know what i'm going to say i think Maybe. We did these concerts for students, and I always narrated the concerts and, you know, basically talked about just the basics of of what each ensemble was that we were presenting. So sometimes we presented a woodwind quintet, sometimes it was a brass group. But the group that, that Caleb was in was two violins, cello, clarinet, and bass, which was essentially a string quintet, but the clarinet was playing the viola part basically. Right. So I had this shtick and and it didn't it didn't matter what the instrumentation was. It was, you know, if it was Mike's wind quintet, it was the flute. This is the flute. The flute plays really high and this is the uh, bassoon and the bassoon plays really low. Um, when you take that to the string quintet that you guys were working with, I did that shtick and it was like, you know, here's Sterling and Rachel and they play, you know, they can play this really high melody and now here's the bass and listen, you know, listen to what the bass can do, assuming that Caleb was going to play really, really low. And instead, Caleb played Twinkle Twinkle in the same register that uh, <laughs> that the violins were playing, <laughs> oh, <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> which right. kind of schooled me. It was like, oh, yeah, well, of course they can do that. But what I was really saying, but I think that kind of blew the kids minds a little bit because it was, you know, there's mm. this kind of limit to low on all of the string instruments. There's there's a lower limit that doesn't go you can't go beyond but the upper limit of all the string instruments is kind of just what your fingers and strings and ears can tolerate and i thought that was i thought that was pretty clever and and pretty funny (laughs) (laughs) yeah i remember it sounded like a like a squeak box i mean Uh it was (laughs) yeah i mean (laughs) the bass above the fingerboard you know we have like all these all these uh trick pieces written for the harmonics above the fingerboard because it the bass because it is so resonant they sound really great up there um but you know we use it for uh mostly tricks a lot of the time especially well, that was a when good i just trick. want to get a laugh out of stephanie <laughs> <laughs> it worked that time for sure so tell us a little bit about just how you got started playing the bass too i mean i think it's true especially of bass players they you know they often start on bass but they often don't uh, and then, of course, there's the famous, uh, you know, you should have played piccolo because they're, you know, trying to lug this giant thing around with a wheel. So, how how did you get into this, and what what made you think it would be a great idea for you to play the bass? Okay, so before we get into that, I have to say this to the audience: if if you find yourself around a bass player, and you really want to use that joke about playing the piccolo or a flute, yeah, mm. don't do it. Yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> 
and it's it's not because because you're not it's not funny to you and and i understand that 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 that's you know, I, you want to just make a joke and, and that's great. But we've heard it so many times. We're probably going to look at you and tell you to, you know, maybe <laughs> some might curse at you. But I wouldn't. <laughs> I would be nicer than that. But just move on. Say hi. And, uh, you know, because we don't wish most of the time. But anyways, so <laughs> I, I got into I got into playing the bass. So I, I, I played guitar first uh, and I started that when I was nine. And it was mostly just playing, you know, like my parents were really into rock music and Pink Floyd and all that stuff. So I, I wanted to become a rock star. Uh, I think because my dad was living vicariously through me, he was like, all right, we're going to start showing guitar and you're going to live out the dream that I wanted to a little <laughs> bit. And I was into it. And then I, I went to middle school and, you know, my mom had mentioned that the orchestra was there and there was a program. And, and I don't know if anybody knows anything about Texas education and but they're very well funded. It's a great program in many, many counties in, in Texas. And, and uh, I don't know exactly how that has worked over the years, but I'm lucky to have started in that program. And, and so I went in to the high school director, Sophia Shea was her name. And I was, you know, she was like, we really want a bass player. And I would just looked at her and I was like, you know what? I want to play cello. And she said, well, we don't have any room for cellists or there's no spots so we have this bass so the bass kind of chose me in that way even though i had had gone in with the attention i think i just wanted to play cello because my friend wanted to play or he was mm -hmm. playing cello so the, the rest is history after that when you um so i'm not going to ask you if you wish you played the piccolo because let's be honest nobody wishes they played the piccolo <laughs> right mike no no one <laughs> right right um but like tell us just just briefly about I mean, when you, let's say you take an audition, we're in the middle of the country here. Let's say you decide to take an audition, you know, in New York or in Florida or, or somewhere, and you have to have an instrument with you. How do you get that instrument across the country? Uh, so I don't have it here, but if you can imagine a mummy case or a mummy <laughs> coffin, whatever they're called, <laughs> something that looks like that, but shaped like a base, more shape more shaped like a base you have to load it into one of those things they're very expensive they're made of uh, carbon fiber southwest airlines is really great about this so a lot of bass players fly southwest we basically have kept them in business over the years uh, with our um want to get away sponsored no. by southwest yeah. airlines southwest airlines if you want to sponsor the kc symphony go right ahead that's right um yeah, so it, they charge, they're great about it. So they just charge 75 bucks and they put it in the cargo, but you have to have that case because it's mm -hmm. a hard case and it's very protective of the instrument. But it is a pain to get it to the airport. I mean, I don't know how many auditions I've gone to, you know, where I, I'm like, okay, I call a cab or an Uber or something and the guy gets to my place and he's like, well, I can't take that. And so I have to call another Uber and I'm like, or, or they say that it's not going to fit. And I'm like, you don't understand. I know how this works. I know it's going to fit. And I get into an argument with them or something, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So we put that on the plane and, and, uh, you know, pray that the people who are taking care of it are, you know, caring of the instrument and usually they are. So yeah, it's a pain, but you kind of have to do it. And if you don't want to buy another ticket or, buy an oversized ticket and some airlines it's like a thousand dollars so um they've been pretty good about that so that's how we have to to travel with the thing you can put a piccolo in a backpack i'm just saying right i, I mean usually... in those moments it, it does <laughs> seem appealing 
<laughs> I usually put mine in the seat back pocket, actually. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Caleb, you are a regular listener to Beethoven Walks Into a Bar, so you know that we ask all of our guests a very important question, and that is, what is your favorite drink? And if you were sitting down in a bar or cafe or wherever with Mr. Ludwig von Beethoven himself, what would you ask him if you were sharing this drink with him? Mm. Okay. So I have to go with just a classic old fashioned. Yes. With one nice. one cube of ice and you know, not too much of the marshmallow cherries, because I know a lot of bars like to put way too much of that in there. They put too much simple syrup. I like to taste the bite of the alcohol. Yeah. So that's my my favorite drink. If I was in a bar with Beethoven having a drink, I'd just say, hey, man, why didn't you include the bass in more chamber music? Mm. You loved us in the orchestra, yeah. and you wrote amazing parts, and you seem to enjoy what you have written for us. Why didn't you do that with the smaller ensemble stuff? And I still don't understand why more composers didn't do that. And I, and I, I think it, my suspicion is that not many bass players were so... Um, were so great back then. I mean, it, ah. it's it's a really tough instrument. I think, I uh, you know, the bass has evolved so much technique and everything just from the, in the past fifty years. You know, there's always been the the one or two players who have been kind of freaking everybody out. You know that they're so good, uh, and that kind of always happens. But I think in the last fifty years, you finally see a more just more uh, more players more consistently being really great and and so maybe that's why but I'd love to talk to him about that because I think as a bass player especially when you get into school you realize there's all this amazing chamber music and we're just not included in any of it mm -hmm. and so that can be kind of a, a sad realization for us yeah. <laughs> in a lot of ways yeah so it's, yeah it's interesting you brought up that very point about Beethoven and you know I'm thinking about his fifth symphony in the third movement, the scherzo, when you get to the trio section, which mm -hmm. is a great bass excerpt and cello, the cello's right. with you as well. The bum, ba da 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 Every conductor in the world used to slow down at that point 50 years ago or earlier because it was really, really tough for the bass section. I think it was Kusevitsky, who was a great bass player himself as music director of the Boston Symphony, who finally said, no, we're going to play this at the tempo that Beethoven intended it to be. And now bass sections everywhere, of course, play it up at the actual tempo it's supposed to be. And that just shows you how far technique has come and, and how much better the playing just keeps on getting and getting in bass players throughout the world. So Yeah. Yeah. Not to mention that we use steel strings now and they're yeah. uh, easier to, to play in a lot of ways. So that's helped us quite a bit. Right. Awesome. Well, that's a great question. Uh, and a new question for Beethoven that we haven't heard yet. So yeah. that's good. Okay, so you guys, we are starting a new segment um, for the show on this week's episode. So this is going to be Beethoven Walks Into a Bar Top 5, where we each are going to give you our top five lists of something. So it can be something musical, something food or drink, could be anything. Uh, but for this first installment, we're going to definitely go musical. We're going to give each of you our top five orchestral overtures. Okay, so... First three are Wagner, be Tannhauser, uh -huh. uh, Lohengrin, and Parsifal. Mm. And then my my uh, four and five are Beethoven, Egmont, and Coriolan. Ah, uh, good ones. So nice. Yeah, 
Those are all good ones. Caleb starts us off strong. Stephanie, what are your top five overtures? I actually also, I had Lohengrin, but I'm curious. Is yours the overture to Lohengrin or is it the prelude to Act 3 of Lohengrin? Because mine is prelude to Act 3. I know it's not technically an overture, but it's an overture to the act and I love it. Yeah. Okay. It's the prelude. So I wanted to talk about this because I was like, it's technically not an overture, but I know that's performed mostly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm right there with you. Awesome. Good. It's awesome. Um, I also chose uh, The Flying Dutchman because I can't listen to the opening of that without thinking amazing things. 1812, because you got to have the canons. Egmont is also on my list, Beethoven's Egmont. Mm. And then you guys, I'm throwing this in there because what director of education would I be without saying... Ruslan and Ludmilla. I knew it was coming. I knew it. Uh, <laughs> that is a good one. That is a good one. <laughs> Mike, did Ruslan and Ludmilla make your top five overture list? Oddly enough, it did not wow. make my top five. <laughs> <laughs> but I'd be happy to play you a D major scale anytime you need. <laughs> No, uh, my my top five also uh, featured Beethoven's Egmont. So uh, Egmont's racking up the points in this. Not that we're keeping score. Um, I, I'm, I, I'm getting too excited. No, you can interrupt. Inter- <laughs> interrupt. Egmont was the f- was the first thing I I played in the orchestra. Actually, Egmont was uh, Egmont. Yeah. Oh, nice. And I just remember because uh, the bass section. It was the first time. It was like a full hired bass section. We all just kind of looked at around at each other and we were like, oh yeah. We sound real good. So, yeah. Yeah. I can see you guys actually looking at each other and saying that, oh, yeah, we sound real good. I can see yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I also love another Beethoven uh, overture, his third Leonore overture. He had to write it three times and an actual one that he used for Fidelio. That's a story for another podcast. But uh, <laughs> infamous flute uh, excerpt in this one so i have to i have to include it um and then and then my others are neither beethoven nor wagner so Ooh. uh i couldn't make a list of best overtures without including mozart's overture to the marriage of figaro that was you, yeah you that was it. on my on my my runner up list for it's sure it's a must have it's a mm. must have uh, brahms's academic festival overture mm. is a favorite oh. of mine and then uh another one that's maybe a little off the beaten path but it's one of my favorite pieces is barber's overture to the school for scandal ah. i mm. did you did you play that at rice i did I played that at Rice. That might have been my very first concert at Rice. And it was the first time I'd ever heard it. And it is a great overture. It's a fantastic piece. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting you should mention that because in my top five list, that is number one, the Overture to the School oh. for Scandal uh, by Samuel there Barber. I totally agree. Amazing overture. Um, I also love Candide Overture by Bernstein. I, I just... How did I forget that? It's just fun. It's just fun. And speaking of fun, Dvorak's Carnival Overture. I think that's a really wonderful orchestral piece. Uh, I also had Verdi's La Forza del Destino Overture. And my last one isn't technically an overture, but it's almost always played to open a concert, and that's John Adams' Short Ride in a Fast Machine. It's like four or five minutes of... Oh, cool. Pure exhilaration for the orchestra. So that that's my top five. It's cool. We have some of the same, but a lot of different ones yeah. as well. I think this says a lot about the instruments that we play too. That's true. And what we do in the orchestra. That is Definitely. true. Yeah. yeah. So I'm going to put together a uh, a playlist for our the today's podcast. We will have a playlist that includes all of these overtures uh, that we've all 
uh, listed in our top five. Sounds good. Sounds good. All right, guys, it is time to play our favorite game here at Beethoven Walks Into a Bar, Bar Talk. And I have to tell you that uh, I mentioned earlier that the bass section is one of the very best in the world, in the universe, but they are also not just great at playing bass, they have quite a bit of fashion sense. I must say (laughs) that they are a stylish section, um, and it's not too often that I don't look over and see see a plaid in our bass section. They definitely like to wear plaid. They like to wear flannel. As a matter of fact, we had a costume contest for our family Halloween concert. I think it was two or three years ago. Mm-hmm. And we had a contest between the sections. And the bass section won that day. They were lumberjacks. So they didn't just wear the plaid, the flannel. They had the boots. The ones that didn't have beards had fake beards. They had saws for bows. <laughs> They, they actually decorated their bows to look like saws. So every time they were moving their bows. With like foil, yeah, right? Yeah, with foil. It was like aluminum foil. It was amazing. Yeah. They had tree tree branches sticking out the top of their scrolls. <laughs> I mean, they looked amazing. So Caleb, uh, first of all, that was pretty cool. Do you you obviously remember winning that, that contest that year, yeah? <laughs> so I have to give a shout out to Margaret Halloween. Yeah. For, I think oh, she, was, the best. she was the crafty one. Uh, for for part of that show, and I'm, I think Evan had had something to do. Evan was the guy who presented. Evan is acting principal right now. He presented the idea, but the thing is about this this show, Jason. It's funny that you don't remember. I actually wasn't there oh. for that show. Uh. So what happened is, and I missed out because it was hilarious. <laughs> um, but so the the bows were uh, the saws were attached to the bows, so it's like we were we were song arrangement, but. <laughs> We won these Mildred's gift cards and I didn't even, I got back and you handed me a Mildred's gift card and I was like, well, I'm not going to just not accept. Oh man, you cheater. (laughs) So so I am confessing right now that I did not, I I took, I took, uh, I feel feel bad and I owe you a sandwich. I owe you a burrito. You owe me a sandwich and a coffee at Mildred's, man. So I, I really do and I'm going to do, I'm going to do that. Everybody listening, I, I, you have my word. Oh, I love it. Um, okay, you know. Okay. So thanks for. So that was a little bit of drama that we that I was going to bring awesome. to the thank show. Thank you for fessing up <laughs> yeah. there. I appreciate that. Three yeah. years later. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Caleb. I appreciate that. Um, so for today's game, you guys are going to need a pen and paper, or you can put these answers in your phone notes. But because the base section does like to wear plaid, even when it's not uh, Halloween, and they do have great fashion sense, I thought it'd be fun to play a game where we talk about various characters in movies and what their fashion statements are. So each of these pair of characters that I'm going to give you is either known for both people wearing plaid all the time or in very important moments in the movie, and I'll tell you what those are if, if that's the case, or stripes. So all these characters either are known for wearing plaid or stripes. I'm going to give you pairs of characters, and you're going to have to tell me, do both of these characters wear plaid? Do both of these characters wear stripes? Or is it one of each, right? So you guys ready? Do we have to tell you which is which? So you're going to write it down, and you're just going to say both plaid, both stripes, or one of each. Okay. Make sense? Yep. Mm -hmm. All right, here we go. Number one, these are both horror movie characters. Freddy Krueger from A Nightmare on Elm Street. And Jack Torrance, played by Jack Nicholson in The Shining. Are they both known for wearing plaid? Both known for wearing stripes? Or one of each? Write down your answer. Got it. And now we're moving on. 
Number two, both of these characters are played by the great Tom Hanks. Woody in Toy Story and Forrest Gump, more known for wearing stripes, plaid, or one of each for those two characters. Also, both have excellent soundtracks. They do have excellent soundtracks. That's they right. They do. Yeah. Uh, number three, one of these people finds people, and the other one is someone that you're trying to find. Sherlock Holmes and Waldo of Where's Waldo? Both stripes, both plaid, or one of each? Next, these are both Tim Burton movie characters. We have Jack Skellington from A Nightmare Before Christmas and Beetlejuice. Jack Skellington and Beetlejuice. Dude, I am nailing this, you good. guys. Just, I'm good. nailing it. Good. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you feeling good? I also need to watch Beetlejuice. Oh, yes. That's a great movie, too. I haven't seen it in a long yeah. time. Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice. And the last one, number five, these are both Disney characters. Nemo from Finding Nemo and Piglet from Winnie the Pooh. Both stripes, both plaid, or one of each. I see some eyes looking to the ceiling. I might have finally stumped you. Ooh. Oh, what does Piglet wear? What does Piglet wear? That would be helpful to know right now, wouldn't it? Better question is, how does a fish wear a shirt? Well, maybe the fish isn't wearing anything. It's just what's on their body. All right. You may have gotten me on the last one. I don't know. All right. We're going to see how you guys did. Uh, You're going to grade your own. We're going to go through this. Please be honest. All right. And then we'll find out who got five out of five. Number one was Freddy Krueger and Jack Torrance. One of each. Freddy Krueger wears a striped sweater. Jack is known for wearing plaid, especially when he really breaks down and goes crazy. Uh, number two, we had Woody from Toy Story and Forrest Gump, both known for wearing plaid. Yes. Now, Woody's plaid is kind of wide, so you might have thought it was stripes, but they are both plaid. Number three, Sherlock Holmes and Waldo, one of each. Sherlock Ooh. Holmes is known for wearing plaid, and Waldo, definitely the, those red and white stripes. Number four, Jack Skellington and Beetlejuice, both Stripes. Whoop, whoop. They both wear pinstripes. Uh, jacks are really narrow, and Beetlejuice's are very wide pinstripes. Or oh, his vertical? Yeah, that's right. They're vertical I guess they too. Are, yeah. Yep. Yep. I think yeah. they're both vertical, as a matter of fact. Um, Tim Burton just likes vertical stripes. The last two: Nemo from Finding Nemo and Piglet. Also, both stripes. What? Did you get five of five, Stephanie? I did. Did anyone else did get anyone five else? of five? How many did you get, Caleb? I got three. Three. Mike? Yeah, I got three. Three. What? Stephanie Brimhall wins Bar Talk. Congratulations, Stephanie. So exciting. I want a Mildred's gift card, Jason. Uh, well, when I get one from Caleb, <laughs> I'll give it to you. How about that? <laughs> uh, that was fun, guys. Thank you. Thank you for playing. And uh, now we know our movie characters even better and their fashion sense. I need to go look up Piglet, though, because I really did guess. Yeah. I couldn't see Piglet in plaid. Yeah, that's true. All right. Well, Caleb, you have been an awesome guest. Thanks for joining us and for telling us all about that base and and plaid shirts and <laughs> Mildred's deceit. <laughs> I'm glad I could good. fulfill. Uh, I could fulfill all these base stereotypes in this conversation. <laughs> I, it's, it's been a joy. Awesome. Well, if you like listening to Beethoven Walks Into a Bar, please give the podcast a rating and review on whatever platform you listen to us. Thanks again, Caleb. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Caleb. Thanks, Caleb. 
Well, friends, the holiday season is upon us once again, and honestly, there is no time of year which has music more tightly woven into its snuggly warm, open fire, chestnut roasting, bell jingling, holly jollying, horse drawn, sleigh riding, ugly sweater fabric than this one. And this year is special because live music is back. We're going to have a holiday film score top five featuring a very special world premiere of our soon to be Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, Tony, Golden Globe, People's Choice, SB Heisman, Nobel, Pulitzer nominated jingle. We'll turn you on to some lesser known holiday music from around the world, and it seems almost inevitable we'll talk about some of our favorite holiday beverages too. All this and more as we close out 2021 on Beethoven Walks Into a Bar. 